This podcast is sponsored by Microlink, the UK's largest assistive technology and workplace adjustment provider. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Charles Clement. I'm a disability consultant here. I'm joined by Diane Lightfoot, our CEO. Hello. Podcasts are a fairly new thing for us, and we're still really keen to hear what you think of them, also what you think about what we've spoken about, and if you've got any questions about disability at all. So please do get in touch with us. You can call us on 0207-403-3020, email us at media at businessdisabilityforum.org.uk, or tweet us at disabilitysmart. Okay, so the podcast today is on the subject of learning disabilities. So I think it might be quite useful, Diane, if you could just give us an overview of what we mean by learning disabilities. Certainly. Um, Well, according to the charity Mencap, one in 50 people in the UK have a learning disability. And that surprised me, actually, at how how high that figure is. There is a lot of confusion in the terminology. Um, The terms learning disability and learning difficulty are sometimes used interchangeably. But to be clear, learning difficulty, when we talk about it, is something like dyslexia, A learning disability um, is something um, more profound. For example, somebody might have Down syndrome, but that's only one of a whole range of conditions. Um, Though confusingly, a lot of disabled people's organisations use the term learning difficulty because some people like it better. So it it is confusing. But Mencap's definition is a reduced intellectual ability and difficulty with everyday activities, for example, household tasks, socialising or managing money, which affects someone for their whole life. And within that, there's a massively broad spectrum from mild learning disability, which may mean someone just needs a bit of help managing their money or paying their bills or with perhaps travel, um, right up to complex and severe learning disabilities where people have very profound needs and need um, sort of 24-7 care and support. Yeah, so it's a really broad church there. It covers lots of different things. So it's probably quite useful if you are using that term within your own organisation to actually define what that means for you. Yes, definitely. And... In the context of employment, which we're, we're talking about today, we are probably mainly talking about people with mild and moderate learning disabilities, although that's not to say that people with more profound needs can't also work, but that's, that's probably a topic for a different podcast. So I understand you've been working in the field of learning disabilities for quite a while, so are you able to gives a little bit of background about what you've been doing? Yes, uh, so before joining BDF, I spent 13 years at United Response, which is a national charity working predominantly with people with learning disabilities. And my role as Director of Policy and Communications um, led me to do lots of campaigning and policy work around employment. It was by far the thing that people got most most sort of passionate about within the organisation. Um, and as a result, I also ended up taking on employment services, so the development and delivery of, sort of operational services, and um, have done lots um, around policy in the area as well, so um, presenting fringe events at party conferences. And last summer, I gave evidence to the Worker Pension Select Committee around learning disability. Great. So it sounds like you've got like a really good knowledge of the employment market uh, for people with learning disabilities. What's your sense? What's that like at the minute? It's not good, basically. Um, so the disability employment gap gets talked about a lot. 
and the figures that are usually cited are around 80% of non-disabled people in employment versus around 47% of disabled people. But there is an additional and huge gap when it comes to people with learning disabilities. I would say it hasn't moved for the last 20 years, but actually it's gone down a percentage in the last year, and it's now less than 6% of people with a learning disability are in work. Yet numerous studies show that people with a learning disability want to work. On average, about two-thirds, 66%, say they want to, and I've personally seen the huge benefits that come from work, not just in terms of money, but in terms of confidence, independence, social networks, and also safeguarding. If you've got a regular team of people who are looking out for you, you are far less vulnerable. And sadly, lots of people with learning disabilities are still very vulnerable in the community. So there's some quite stark kind of figures there, quite worrying figures. Why do you think that might be... Well, I think possibly part of it is the confusion of the definition. Uh, Lots of people don't know what a learning disability is, let alone what they have to offer. Um, And it's very much about the right job for the right person, but that's that's true of any of us. And um, sort of in, in thinking about this and looking at the business case, actually why employ someone with a learning disability... Of course, they could be the best person for the job, and I don't want to generalise too far, but there are lots of examples where people are really well matched to jobs that others might find too repetitive, but they actually really enjoy it, do it really well, and take great satisfaction in it. We also see that there's great um, and positive impact on staff morale. Numerous employers come back and say what a hugely positive impact it's had, having someone with a learning disability on their team. Um, One study showed that uh, 72% of employers regarded the impact on company morale as an important factor in deciding to employ someone with a learning disability, and 97%, almost all in fact, of employers said they were likely to hire this group again. Um, I was chatting to one of our members, National Grid, a few weeks ago, and they were talking about their supported internship employability programme, which is for young people with a learning disability. And one of the really interesting findings was not just that the young people got so much out of it, but that people who had worked at National Grid for many, many years got so much and sort of reinvigorated their own job satisfaction just by showing it to someone else. Um, And the hard stats support it too. Uh, One study revealed that people with a learning disability stay in their jobs three and a half times longer than their co-workers. And the same study showed reduced costs around sickness absence and reliability. So so it it kind of stacks up in all directions. There's some quite compelling facts and figures there you're kind of talking through. How would you go about kind of finding these people with learning disabilities to recruit in the first place? Um, well, well, all sorts of ways, really. Um, a few sort of proactive suggestions. Job centres uh, have disability employment advisors who, who are pan-disability, but they'll see lots of people with a learning disability who want to work and have either self-referred or have been referred to them as part of a welfare-to-work programme like Work Choice. Um, Some local authorities also have their own programmes as well, so they can be a good source of information. Um, The most obvious route is direct via a learning disability charity. So MENCAP runs some really interesting supported internship work placement programmes. United Response runs dedicated employment services which support people into work and match them with an employer. Um, And I'm I'm sure that there are many others out there and they'd be very pleased to hear from employers who who are keen to do that and getting the matching right. And of course, you know, you can can use an open advert as long as you make it accessible and you don't create a barrier at that point for people with a learning disability. So you mentioned they're having an accessible advert. What would that look like? Well, traditional adverts, um, they tend to be very small print. They can be full of jargon. Um, They often 
require uh, qualifications that aren't necessarily um, essential for the job. So making sure, firstly, that the minimum criteria are really the minimum. So if you don't need somebody to have A-levels or GCSE, then, then, then don't put that in the, in the spec. Um, but also having it in simple words and phrases, avoiding idioms, having um, large text, and also having pictures that support the text can be really helpful. And I know that time can be a premium, but even saying this advert or this information is available and easy read, contact us, could go a long way. And so you mentioned there the kind of a lot of involvement from charities and other organisations to kind of help people with learning disabilities get into employment. Why do you think there seems to be more of that happening in, with people with learning disabilities and other impairments, perhaps? Do you get a sense why that might be? Well, I think it goes back to the huge gap again that there are there are far more people who want to work and they need the extra support to do that and one of the things that has time and time been shown to work is where um, not necessarily charities but often charities um, have job coaches who work very intensively with a person with a learning disability and they may not have had um, a traditional education um, particularly if they're older they may not have had aspirations for work so there's that whole behind the scenes stuff that needs to happen around what work is um, what somebody's skills and interests are, um, what might appeal to them. And it's, it's quite a sophisticated thing. Um, I was told this really interesting story a couple of years ago about a young man who was referred to United Responses Employment Service in Cornwall. And his job coach asked him um, what he was interested in and what job he'd like. And he said, I'd like to be a pilot. And the job coach was great and took, him, took it very seriously and said, OK, what is it about being a pilot that appeals to you? And it turned out that this guy just really liked planes. So they then identified that he actually had some really good admin skills. Um, he was extremely good at systems and remembering things. And he's now got a job as admin at Newquay Airport, which he absolutely loves. And he can tell you all the plane times, um, whether they're late, whether they're on time. So it's actually having the sophistication to say, OK, that's important to him. But how can we actually translate that to work for you in the real world? That's a really nice example. One of the things we sometimes find um, speaking to employers is that they feel that people with certain impairments would be good in certain roles. When you're working at United Response and you're working with employers, did you feel that that was the case sometimes or what kind of roles are being looked at for people with learning disabilities? It can be and I think we would always say that, that any approach needs to be person-centred which in itself is, is jargon but obviously individuals are just that they are individuals so there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution and it is really about thinking creatively about a person's um, interests and likes and experience which don't necessarily have to be about academic qualifications or past work experience so there is that creativity that said, there are lots of entry-level type jobs in the retail, catering and hospitality sectors that can fit disabled people's skill sets really well, uh, learning disabled, I mean. Um, I also think there's a big opportunity for people with learning disabilities to work in social care. Um, workforce issues are one of the ones that always are coming up, and um, particularly with the conversations on a daily basis about Brexit and what that might happen for companies that rely on a migrant workforce, well, surely there must be a business case for tapping into the pool of talent with people with a learning disability. And it's great to see some employers now starting to do that. Yeah, I think definitely employers are starting to look, be more flexible about the way they recruit people. One of the things we hear a little bit about is job carving. So are you able to give us a little bit of information about that? Yes, definitely. Job carving is, is a great concept um, for lots of people, but it is most often applied to people with learning disabilities. There are two main ways of thinking about job carving. 
Um, one is really that if someone can do, say, 80 or 90% of a role, but will struggle with the remaining 10 or 20%, so if that's maybe something to do with managing money, and, and I use that just as an example, then it could be that another person within the organisation can do that and, and make the job doable for that person. Um, the second way of looking at it is if a business wants to employ someone with a learning disability but doesn't have an obvious role in place, um, a job coach will often talk to them and say, okay, but are, are there lots of tasks that you are struggling to get done? So may, maybe typically administrative tasks. And actually, if those tasks were joined together, and it might not be a full-time role, it might be a role that's eight hours a week, 16 hours a week, but then that could be a role for someone with a learning disability and it's kind of win-win really because they're getting done what they need done and the person benefits too. Um, I kind of think of it really as about playing to people's strengths, uh, which, is, which is true, of course, mm. for all the workforce. So you found uh, you've kind of found a charity or an organisation you want to work with, or you've somebody's applied to you directly who's got learning disability. How do they go about applying for the job with you? I mean, are there any barriers that people commonly experience? There are lots of barriers, um, but there are also lots of solutions. So recruitment as a first step is often a barrier. Um, lots of people won't have a traditional CV. Um, may well find online applications, particularly online portals, really very difficult to navigate, which I think is true not just of people with learning disabilities. Um, we've talked about adverts, but similarly job descriptions and person specifications that ask for things that aren't really needed um, or aren't clear in what they're asking for, those huge barriers. So being open to accepting different forms of CV or even evidence, um, and again, easy read job descriptions that make it really clear what the tasks are can really help. Um, it's also about interview stage. So many people with learning disabilities would struggle at interview to present their skills. And they're not really being tested at an interview on the skills that they'll need for the job. They're being tested on how well they can sell themselves. So one of the things that is, again, proven to work is what's called the place and train model, or essentially a working interview where someone is given the opportunity to learn the job and then demonstrate they can do it rather than having to talk about it. And that can work really well. Um, it's absolutely crucial, though, that there's a genuine opportunity of it there being uh, paid work at the end of it. It mustn't just be um, unpaid work, which, which can happen and can be obviously exploitative. But I've heard some really nice um, examples of people being able to demonstrate they can do work. And um, one particular one, actually, just demonstrating how much interview is a barrier. One young man who I used to work with, um, really very able, but always always absolutely went to pieces when it came to interview, just, just couldn't, couldn't cope with them. Um, he ended up doing some work for United Response, which massively built up his confidence. In the end, he was able to get himself um, a full-time job at Cornwall Council, as it turned out. But that's because he'd been able to demonstrate it, and he didn't just have to talk about what he'd done. And I think interviews and the whole process is actually kind of inherently quite stressful, isn't it? Um, and one of the things we do kind of ask employers a lot to do is to be flexible about the way that they look at disabled candidates. Do you think that employers are able to do that quite easily? Well, we recently, as you probably know, did some research amongst um, BDF members that showed that employers were much less confident around making adjustments around neurodiversity, including learning disability, um, compared to physical disability. And with everything, I think um, that 
obviously HR has to support, but the line manager is absolutely key and being building the relationship, having the confidence to ask the person what they need, to get to know them, um, and to establish really good communication. And particularly as a lot of learning disabilities aren't visible. So even having even having the thought that if someone isn't reacting to a question in a way that I might expect, maybe they have a learning disability and thinking about that. So when people are actually in employment, so they've got through your your application stage, they're in employment, what um, adjustments or changes in the workplace might they need? Getting the induction right is really, really important um, and making sure that the tasks in any given job are really broken down so that someone can properly learn them. Um, there's a specific term for that called training in systematic instruction. It basically means breaking down a task into all its very small component parts and always teaching it in the same order so that someone can follow the process and learn it. And um, the way it was described to me when I first heard about it was if you were teaching someone to iron a, sh- iron a shirt and on the first day someone shows you to do it and they iron the sleeves first and on the second day someone else shows you and they iron the, the collar first then you're going to be completely confused. So it's about consistency. I also heard this really nice story of someone who'd um, got a placement in Benetton, um, folding jumpers and amongst other things. And they were shown in detail how to fold the jumper, but they kept struggling with the last bit. And when someone who was trained in uh, TSI came and had a look, they worked out training in systematic instruction. Sorry, it's it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, They realised that the two last processes had been rolled into one. And when that was unpicked, the person could do it. Um, Obviously ask them what they need and if they have a job coach or or someone supporting them then ask them too because they'll have done a lot of work together. Um, Most of the adjustments that will be needed for someone with a learning disability are likely to be very cheap. Mencap reckons that the average cost of adjustment is £75 um, and of course access to work can support that. Um, access to work can also um, fund a support worker to help somebody learn the job in the first case um, and also to help them learn their route to work as a kind of a travel buddy to help them travel independently. Um, Don't assume knowledge, I think, is one of the main things as well that line managers need to remember, that what seems obvious to people who've grown up through the education system and always had the aspiration of work and knowing what work is may not be obvious, so make, make sure you really explain things. Yeah, great, thank you. So you've got all the adjustments. What happens if something goes wrong, someone's not doing what they're meant to do or maybe they're breaking the rules? What would you recommend? Well, again, um, assuming that you know the person has a learning disability, um, it's very important to find out why they seem to be breaking the rules. And it may well be a confusion or they're just not clear. So again, it goes back to the induction process and really making it clear what, what the rules are really, what's okay, um, and what's not okay. I mean, I'm thinking again back when I was at United Response. Some of the work pre- work preparation uh, training was around making sure that you were on time for work, what was appropriate to wear for work, um, sort of standards of hygiene and cleanliness, and those sorts of things that most people are kind of have drummed into them. Have not not necessarily happened for people with learning disabilities. Um, So again, it could well be that some rule hasn't been explained properly. In one of our um, briefings, there's a really great example of a person with a learning disability working in a supermarket and helping himself to the pick and mix. 
And fortunately, the line manager was extremely enlightened. And rather than approaching him and saying, well, you've, you've been stealing, that's it. Um, she unpicked it and realised that he didn't realise that that wasn't okay. And he saw these sweets out there, saw people taking them, thought they were just there for people to help themselves to. Once it was explained to him, that was completely fine. So again, he goes back to not making any assumptions and making it really, really clear what the expectations are. I think that's a really good example of where kind of getting things right for disabled people actually gets it right for everyone because I've, been, I've worked in HR for quite a while previously to coming to BDF. And uh, one of the things we found is that pe people who'd never worked in an office before, for example, mm -hmm. didn't know about etiquette, didn't know about workplace behaviours. And you assume that everyone does know those things. And it's you really do. useful, actually, to kind of go over that at the induction point, isn't it? And kind of like just clarify exactly what you mean with everything, what's expected of people in the workplace. Absolutely. And we used to talk in employment services about the fact that rightly um people with learning disabilities have choice and control over how they live their lives and so great great um improvements have been made and great progress and that's fantastic but actually when it comes to going to work you can't it's not like saying i don't fancy going bowling today if you have a job you have to go to work so even things like that and making sure that you leave enough time to get ready in the morning they're all new skills and they're all really really important to someone's success in, in getting and keeping a job so you mentioned there are things about kind of outside of work as well, you know, getting up in the morning, things like that. What support do people with learning disabilities require or they might require um, around work, not just actually in the workplace? Yeah, oh, well, a few things, really. I mentioned travel training. So for a lot of people, they may not have traveled independently before. Um, so having support either from a job coach or from, or from a friend or family member so that they can learn their route, they know where to get off, they know what to look for, they know who to ask for help if they need it, that can be um, massively important, obviously, to get to work. Um, there are various bits of a wearable technology as well that can support people and remind them of what they need to do in the morning and their morning routine, um, obviously, if they, they don't have uh, support at home. Um, there are also things around actually accessing banking and money management. So once people have a job, clearly they need somewhere to put their income and that, that may not have been so much of an issue before. So again, making sure that they have support to open a bank account, to learn how to manage it and that the banks, and there's some really good practice in banks actually, um, it's meeting their needs and understands them as a customer is also really important. So it's, it's quite holistic around the person to make sure it's a success. Great, thank you. I've got one more question before we move on to our top tips. And this is something we've been asked about in the helpline a few times. It's a little bit contentious, actually. It's about the therapeutic wage. So I'd be interested to hear from you, kind of, what is it and what are your thoughts on that? Well, the therapeutic wage was an idea put forward oh, a, year, a year or so ago, possibly more. And it's, it's kind of a, not a brand new idea. And the idea was that given the huge gap um, in learning disability employment, one way to try and tackle it was to say that employers didn't have to pay the national minimum wage, now the national living wage, to people with a learning disability and could therefore pay them less and call it a therapeutic wage in order to encourage them to employ more people with a learning disability. And I, I get where the motivation from that comes from in terms of employing more people. However, um, I personally am not supportive of, of that and nor is BDF and our, our view is that people should be paid an equal amount for an equal job and it comes back very much to it being the right job for the right person and, and, it, and it's not about doing somebody a favour and doing the right thing, it's about matching the right job for them and my favourite story around this is um, quite a few years ago I was involved in um, delivering a social enterprise which was working for a fulfilment company 
Um, and the fulfillment company's whole job was compiling uh, financial information packs for an insurer. And you probably know that there are very strict financial regulations around those sorts of packs that go out. Um, they get regulated by what was then the Financial Standards Authority um, and regularly audited to check that all the information was included and it was in the right order. And this fulfillment company had had umpteen um, teams of temps trying to do this and they always scored below the quality threshold and were always getting fined for it. An enterprising local manager actually from uh, Norfolk County Council approached them and said, how about we run it for you? And then did it in conjunction with United Response um, with a team of people with learning disabilities. And these were people with actually at least moderate learning disabilities. But they broke the process up within the team. And as a result of that, um, the firm achieved the proper compliance rating for the first time ever. And I went to visit um, the place where they did it, the, sh the shop floor, if you like, and the people who showed me around, the people with a learning disability, took such pride in it and the quality control that went into it. And I just thought there was a brilliant example of people being really fulfilled, learning new skills and actually doing a better job than anyone else. And were they getting paid the full salary? They were, yes. Yeah, that's good. Um, so finally, can you maybe sum up your top three tips and getting it right for people with learning disabilities and employment? Well, it's hard to pick just three, but I will go with... Firstly, as I keep saying, matching the right job to the right person, finding out their strengths, skills, interests, and matching them to the job is, is really absolutely key. And indeed, to the right employer, to the right, right environment. But the matching process is central. Um, the second one is communication. So clear language, easy read, support with pictures, not using idioms or, or strange phrases, and being really, really clear, crucially, about what the job is, what, what's, what's expected, and how to break it down. And the third one, I would just say give it a go. You might find it's the best move you've ever made. Yeah, definitely. Give it a go. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really interesting, Diane. Thank you very much for uh, speaking to us today. So as I said before, we'd love to hear from you. So please let us know what you think of what we've talked about today or if you have any questions. Uh, you can contact us by calling 0207 403 3020 or email us at media at .org.uk or tweet us at Disability Smart. This podcast is sponsored by Microlink, the UK's largest assistive technology and workplace adjustment provider.